idea was to, to make the uh, engine or the carburetor ice up, which I did successfully, and we watched it build up on the carburetor. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 93 of the Rotary Wing Show, where we get to learn more about this amazing industry that we're in and these fantastic machines. Wherever you are in the world today, thanks for joining in and hanging out with several hundred other people who are just as keen as you are. This episode, we are deep inside piston engine territory with a focus on carburetor icing. In particular, how it affects helicopter engines. What causes it? why it's dangerous, some common misconceptions, and the right way to use the carburetor heat control. Our conversation focuses on the Robinson models, but it should be broadly applicable. And what you're going to hear in this episode is more detail and more backstory on carburetor icing than I had picked up in the last 10 years of actually flying and instructing in piston engines. So hopefully that doesn't paint me in too poor a light. It's just that my interaction with carburetor icing has been pretty much limited to what I've read in theory training notes on aircraft general knowledge, which is often normally fixed wing based. And obviously we use it every day um, in terms of carburetor heat during our startup checks. We check for a temperature rise and an RPM drop, and then pulling on the carburetor heat during our pre-landing checks and selecting off on, on late approach. And the Cabri G2, it's, it's even easier because after our initial startup checks, we just leave the carburetor heat in auto mode. All my piston engine time has been in southeast Queensland, close to 27 degrees south in latitude. The local conditions are frequently inside the carburetor icing temperature and humidity charts for large parts of the year. In winter, we get down to an average low temperature of 10 to 12 degrees centigrade overnight. So not too cold, but definitely with latent cooling due to fuel vaporization, we are in that cautionary. As far as I know, at least, I've never experienced any effects of carburetor icing and I've not had any rough running. So what happened was I was preparing for my instructor proficiency check in November and found a short document on carburetor icing in helicopters written by today's guest, Richard Mornington Sanford. Before reading Richard's document, I never really had been exposed to the idea that our throttle battlefly valves are not wide open on takeoff and the implications of what that is for helicopters. It seems obvious in, in retrospect, it's just something I'd never actually sat down and, and thought about. So to explain the entire setup much better than I can, let's go meet Richard. All right, I've got record going there. And okay. Uh, Richard, just before I hit record, you were telling me about uh, where you live. Uh, so do you want to, yeah, I, I guess to just give a, a quick description again of, of where in the world you are, because your accent would, most listeners would, would place you somewhere else. Yes, most probably England. Mostly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, a lot of people would say Australia sometimes. But, uh, so uh, I live in Borneo. Uh, the north of Borneo, which is actually Sabah, 
part of the Malaysian Federation. And uh, I've got a villa right at the very, very northern tip of, of Borneo. Can't go much further unless you want to go into the Philippines. Uh, but it is one of the most fabulous places in the world, without, without doubt, described as God's Disneyland by a, a very famous chap, botanist in, in, uh, in the UK. Uh, so we're very lucky to, to live here. We packed everything in a container, I don't know, almost 10 years ago, and just shipped out that wet, windy rock called the United Kingdom. And had a, we've had a fantastic nine plus years here. I have no real intention of going back anywhere that's cold and, and wet. But we just see, I've got a 12-year-old daughter and her education really is, is the driving force. But um, I don't know what you do. It doesn't get much better than this. So everything is sort of downhill, I think. But getting old, the bones ache. So I want to stay somewhere where it's warm. I have to pop over to Australia or somewhere that help me. Most people wouldn't. They don't <laughs> like the Brits much in Australia. Oh, well, we've got the, the mother country there. All right. If you step outside your door <laughs> at the moment, uh, it's yep. becoming evening evening there but what do you see when you step outside the front we are 50 meters from the beach white sandy beach uh, and we have a reef right in front of us we're slightly elevated most probably 80 meters above sea level uh, i have a helipad a grass helipad and then grass right down to the beach so it, it is a magnificent view and west facing and we get some of the most beautiful sunsets in the world here. So I'm very, very lucky. It was a, it was a, I don't know, it was a decision made by the heart rather than any sense. Uh, my view was that when I flew over it in a helicopter, I just said to the guy, how do I buy a piece of this? God doesn't seem to be making any beachfront anymore. So I thought, well, you can't really go wrong. It's a fantastic place. Amazing. I, I never thought it. I'd ever own something like this. It's way beyond my uh, scale, really. But hey, somebody's <laughs> got to do it. Well, sounds good. It's going to, uh, I guess, surprise people then to think that you're in a location there, and, and I guess here in Australia as well, and we're going to be talking about carburetor icing. Because, yeah. and I must admit, I shared my background with you previously, it, it just wasn't something that I thought too much about because it's pretty warm here would kind of think about it being a cold climate type thing. But, yeah, can you, I guess, launch into why we should listen to you? <laughs> so what do you know about, uh, what do you know about uh, piston yeah. engines, I guess? And let's talk about some of the things that you discovered along the way. Okay. Well, yeah, well, you should, should listen to me. Most people don't, actually. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I'm from England. Uh, originally, and of course England is a classic carbising uh, environment, uh, what you need is, is 50 plus percent humidity or more. And the UK, I think daily average is somewhere around about 60, 65 percent. So every day is pretty much a carbising day. And one of the myths, of course, is, is that you can't get carbising during the summer because you've got warm air. And actually, you know, warm air holds more moisture than cold air. And so actually, uh, car pricing, uh, is as dangerous during the summer, uh, as it is during the, during the winter. So, um, you know, that was one of the myths that I wanted to try and dispel. But the whole thing really, this document of mine, 
is uh, I'm a Robinson helicopter air accident investigator and um, technical investigator. And they had sent me, Frank sent me to Switzerland to investigate a, um, not a fatal accident, but it was a, it, it was a serious accident. When I, when I got there, um, it, was, it was classed as a low RPM rotor stall accident. And uh, so to assist the uh, Swiss accident investigator, uh, we looked at some of the operational conditions that the pilot would have found himself in prior to the accident. And one of the things that was very, very noticeable is it was the chap's weight. He, he was very, very small, very lightweight. And the interesting uh, thing that he kept his aircraft parked overnight at a friend's, I think it was a BMW garage. His idea was that the less fuel you have in the helicopter when it's parked, the safer it is. And of course, that's totally wrong. But it meant that actually when he took off, he was at a very, very low takeoff weight. And it was classic car racing conditions on the day he took off. And there were lots of witnesses that saw him climb down and all pretty much said as he leveled off, the blade slowed down and he fell to the sky. It should have been, it was a survivable accident, but unfortunately his head hit this cyclic center post and he had some brain damage. So my first interest really was power being demanded by the pilot during takeoff. And up to that point, all the information you had on carburetor, icing, piston engines was from Lycoming. And Lycoming said that you, the carburetor icing basically is negligible at takeoff power. And I thought, well, that can't be possibly correct because his takeoff power was minimal compared to what Lycoming mean takeoff power as in full throttle to an aeroplane. So my aim was to try and find out exactly what the butterfly angle in the carburetor would be versus the amount of power he would have been pulling, minimum that is, uh, during takeoff. Uh, that's where I hit Stonewall, really, because Lycoming didn't know. They said, talk to the, uh, Marvel Schebler in those days. Uh, they said they didn't know, talk to Lycoming. Robinson, of course, bless them, they didn't know. And I actually felt it was a very important technical issue as to the potential cause of the accident. So it took me three years uh, with some help, actually, from the design engineers at Robinson, uh, and I came up with this document. And the document tried to show the Robinson pilot in particular of carburetted types that takeoff power is not what Lycoming say, and that is full throttle. Where I agree with them that full throttle, the, the butterfly valve, 90 degrees, so the chances of carburetor icing are minimal. But of course, with a derated engine, um, then your butterfly valve is actually nowhere near uh, full throttle. And I did a little uh, presentation to the CAA um, quite a few years ago. And I looked at basically, I think the, it was uh, sea level at plus 15 degrees C was the conditions. Yep. 
And if you look at a, um, we were talking about the Beta, the R22 Beta, uh, that has a 160 brake horsepower engine in it, and the butterfly valve angle at the 131 brake horsepower is about 53 degrees, 90 being full throttle, fully open. And your MCP, maximum continuous power, is at 50 degrees. Now your Beta 2, which is 180 brake horsepower engine, derated to the same as the Beta, 131 and 124 MCP. Because it's more derated, uh, this situation gets worse. In as much as your five minute rating, 131 brake horsepower in your Beta 2, the angle, butterfly angle, is only 50 degrees. And your MCP, max continuous power, is uh, 47 degrees, 46, 47 degrees. So you can see um, the importance of having more carb heat applied given the conditions, icing conditions uh, for the carburetor uh, in a beta 2 than you would have in a beta. And in the 44s, how do they um, work out? Well, the 44, I mean, uh, in all the trials I did on the 44, I, I never actually got it to the engine to stop due to carburetor icing. So I, I go and get, a, uh, let's say, a beta or beta 2 engine to stop, uh, and then land, jump into an R44 and do exactly the same thing. And I never personally ever got the engine to stop due to carburetor icing in a 44. Because several reasons. One is that your five minute rating in your R44, this is sort of Astro Raven, Raven 1, not Raven 2. So the five minute rating is 60 degrees butterfly valve angle, and your MCP is about 54 degrees. Plus, so they're, they're, they're slightly more uh, open uh, in those conditions. Plus, of course, you've got the uh, heat soak. Because the engine in your R44 is cowled in, it gets a little bit of help from uh, engine heat soak. Uh, I think it, I'm not saying it won't give you carburetor icing. I'm just saying that in my trials, I never managed to get it to do so. Yeah, I think um, if, if so, anyone's listening, this is probably the the, the whole crux. I'll, I'll circle back with a couple of things here, but this is probably the whole crux to take away from this conversation. Is this part where uh, what you're saying is, is most takeoffs. The, especially at sea level uh, or at lower altitudes, that the yeah the the butterfly valve is nowhere near full open, which is normally what you see in the in the books and most engines. They're talking about airplane engines, so that's the the crux yeah. of what's different with us for the helicopter. Yeah. yeah, yes, for us it's 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 misleading. It's not incorrect. It's just that nobody to this point has pointed out you know, or basically looked at how carburetor uh, icing affects the helicopter pilot and not just the fixed wing pilot. So you can see that if you fly a Beta 2, because it's more derated, so from 180 horsepower to 131 and 124, the butterfly valve angle is, is closer to you know, getting on towards idle. If you, look at, if you look at the idle, we're talking about sort of between 35 and between 35 and 40 degrees. So if you get a light person, as this Swiss guy was, 
with minimal takeoff weight. I mean, I mean, the power he would have been pulling, I don't know, would have been, you know, minimal. He would have definitely been exposed to the possibility of carb icing during the climb-out, which was, you know, a shock to a lot of people. Now, Richard, there's a whole range of people listening. So one thing I'll just explain there. So MCP was a max continuous power. And can you go yeah. through, I guess, just the operation of the of a carburetor and the throttle body? explain the, the fuel evaporation uh, in terms of dropping the temperature and then I guess the, the pressure yeah. drop as well. So if you just, uh, yeah, I guess we'll just step backwards for a moment if you just want to go back to basics and just explain where that temperature drop yeah. uh, comes from. Okay, well, the first thing to understand with the R22 is that the probe for the carb air temperature gauge is basically in the standard position which everybody knows is the wrong position. So it is upstream of the butterfly valve. And that is why on your carburetor gauge, you have that decal that warns you about um, basically disregarding the carb heat and pull full carb heat at low power settings. So we've got two areas of carburetor icing. Uh, one is upstream and the other one is downstream of the butterfly valve. So if we look between the fuel jet and the butterfly valve, we've got a, uh, a fuel coming out of the jet that is being vaporized. So if we vaporize the fuel, then of course we're taking latent heat from the uh, ambient air temperature in order to vaporize the fuel. So we get a drop in temperature in that area because of that. The second thing, of course, is that we've got a reduction in pressure, and uh, therefore we get a further drop in temperature. And that drop in temperature on the upstream part of the carburetor can be anywhere between 20 and 30 degrees below the temperature of the incoming air. That's so great. So there's a massive temperature drop. Uh, hence, that's why you get carburetor icing on that side of the butterfly valve. The second area is downstream, uh, so between the butterfly valve and the engine itself. Now, this area uh, of carburetor icing is caused by low power settings. So, in other words, any time that uh, butterfly valve is towards the closed position, then you get a drop in uh, pressure and therefore you get the corresponding drop in temperature on that side, and we get a nice build-up. The first problem to understand is that because the probe for the R22 is in the wrong place, but it's the same place, and I don't think there's actually a position where you could put it anywhere else, you have to be mindful that the information of that gauge can be uh, misunderstood, and so Robinson uh, tried to cover that by adding the decal to the um, temperature gauge. On the R44, the probe is in the correct position. So in other words, it's downstream of the butterfly valve. So therefore, if I can keep the temperature there above freezing, it's going to be above freezing everywhere else. Whereas if you notice in your R22, when you 
go into, let's just say, a climb up to 2,000 feet or something and then do a low-power approach somewhere, you'll actually see the temperature go up on your calm air temperature gauge in a 22. So, and that's why you have to disregard the gauge uh, in low power. Okay. So, the first area of carburetor icing, which is upstream of the butterfly valve, is insidious in as much as if you don't have enough carb heat applied during your flight, then ice will build up on your butterfly valve. And if you don't clear that ice before you make any sort of reduction in power, then when you reduce the power on top of already ice on the upstream side of the butterfly valve, then your engine will stop because of the ice now forming on the reverse side of the butterfly valve. You're essentially just blocking blocking the airflow at that point. So between the ice and, the, and the closed yeah. um, throttle valve. Yeah. I got, I mean, this, it, it's amazing really um, at this, this day and age that we really still struggling with carburetor icing in these uh, these engines, fixed wing and, and rotary. Uh, but I was I was uh, I was asked to get involved with a company in the UK that thought they had a fix. And the uh, what they'd done is they'd put a carburetor on a, on a test bed, standard uh, carburetor from an O320 engine, and uh, they put a camera upstream and downstream and ran this thing and you can watch i've got a video that i showed you in the safety course you just watch this ice build up on the butterfly valve it's frightening and how quickly uh, it builds up because the r22 pro is where it is then i always recommend it because i did some trials i did some test flights on, on the r22 and i could get the engine to stop with the uh, gauge needle outside the yellow, just outside the yellow, which is the common practice. People say, in fact, Robinson says, just just keep the needle out of the yellow. And I found that up to around 12 degrees uh, indicated uh, on a known accurate gauge, I could still get carburetor icing. How do you actually physically go and do that? I'm trying to picture in the hover, trying to lower the lever and, and, and get it to close, but how do you actually go and test it? No, cruise. Okay. In the cruise. Uh, it's actually, it's, it's, it's reasonably easy to get a, an R22 to um, suffer from a bit of red icing in the cruise. In fact, going back to this company that has, has the fix for this, uh, we modified a carburetor for their fix. And we put a cam. We couldn't put a camera downstream, obviously, but we could put a camera upstream. So we put the camera uh, in the airbox, looking up at the butterfly valve. And I had all the equipment, temperatures. And I actually flew test flew this R22, and the idea was to to make the uh, engine or the carburetor ice up, which I did successfully. And we watched it build up on the carburetor. And um, we recorded it all, and then I press a button, and then the ice would disappear, and all that sort of good stuff. So, it, most of it was done in the cruise, you know, lightweight areas which I thought were dangerous. 
you know, areas where like one person, minimum fuel uh, in the cruise, uh, where the butterfly valve is, is not particularly wide open. So I did a lot of work and I found actually to be safe with the R22, you needed 15 degrees indicated your carb air temperature gauge in order to be reasonably sure that during your cruise portion of the flight, you weren't building up any ice on the, on the butterfly valve. Now, of course, the crux of that is, is the gauge. Unless the, I think you're realizing, or people are realizing, that the, the carburetor uh, air temperature gauge is actually an important piece of equipment in the aircraft. And so, therefore, you have to make sure that it's accurate. Fortunately, you can only do that prior to the first start of the day. So if you go out to your R22 and switch the battery on, your carb air temperature and your outside air temperature should be reading the same because they're doing the same job. Gotcha. Yeah. And that is the only time that the pilot can check the accuracy of the gauge. It's very, very important to do that. After, once you've started the engine course, then unfortunately um, you, you're no longer able to gauge the accuracy of the gauge. So that's the, that's the first thing. The second thing really, if you, if you want to be armed with information about likelihood of carburetor icing prior to going flying, then the simple thing is, is air temperature versus dew point. The closer those two are together, then the more likelihood that you're going to get some carburetor icing. So that's very, very simple. And then during your startup and pre-takeoff checks, you'll check the carb heat. And most people are just checking the deflection the gauge yeah, the right way, increase in temperature. Actually, that's, that's pretty, I mean, you can check it, but to me, it's, it's pretty irrelevant. The most important thing is what is happening to your RPM, your engine RPM. What should happen is that your RPM should decay because the engine is less efficient. Uh, and if it just decays and stays there, that's telling you, you don't have carb icing. However, if it decays and then increases without you touching it, it means that you've cured icing during your warm-up and you've just removed it by applying carb heat. So that would warn the pilot prior to takeoff the conditions that he's flying in. It's funny because on that check, um, <laughs> I must yep. admit that probably the biggest thing I pay attention to is when you turn the carburetor heat off, that the, the needle actually goes back down. Because I normally you know, tell people, well, make sure the cable hasn't broken so you're not actually taking off with, with carburetor heat running the entire time and, and losing the power. If if you did get that RPM drop and then rise, are you then just leaving the, the carb heat on the rest of the, the warm-up checks uh, and sort of heat soaking it? No, not really. It's, again, you see, the, the, the problem is, is there's not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, however, there is um, something that we can, would say that look, if you follow this, and it pretty much covers all eventualities. Because, for example, in the UK, most of our airfields are grass airfields. And therefore, you know, during the autumn, etc., you'll be parked on wet grass. And you start the engine, well, if you're parked on wet grass, I can guarantee you're going to get icing in the carburetor 
uh, takeoff, and you will see that when you do your carb heat check. Even if you're on concrete, if you're on wet concrete, you will also tend to get carbon rising when you start up and do your warm-up. So even though I sort of said that's a good indication, that's erring on the side of caution because your conditions actually in flight are not, uh, may not be so bad. So what I would say to the person is, that if, if I do see that I've had some buildup of carbon rising, then I'm going to use a little bit more carb heat application than I would normally, uh, just to be on the safe side. Because really, quite honestly, unless you are pulling 80% of rated power, pulling full carb heat doesn't damage the engine due to detonation or pre-ignition. And at your five-minute rating, you're sort of, I don't know, what, 75%. So there's no fear of using excessive carb heat for damaging your engine. What you need to be fearful of is that you use enough to stop the engine potentially icing up, or the carburetor, sorry, icing up. But you can add to that that if you keep, if you do listen to me, um, and, you know, I can only go on my experience. I've done a lot of research on all of this. You need 15 degrees all the time on a known accurate gauge. And then prior to making any descent, any change in your power, reduction in power, that is, is that you want to pull full carb heat at least 20, 25 seconds before you lower that lever. If you do that, if you have occurred ice on the butterfly valve during cruise, then you will clear it prior to closing the butterfly valve. And where you will, um, again, further prevent the possibility of the uh, engine cutting out during the descent. Gotcha. In the R44, the models which have got the, the auto carburetor heat, which is linked to, to the collective, is there any yeah. tricks with that or any to, to point out with that sort of system? Yeah. I mean, Frank and I used to have some pretty hot conversations about that. So it's a carb heat assist. Okay. It's not automatic. It's a carb heat assist. And it's on a Beta 2 and it's on an Astro Raven Raven. My view is, uh, you know, it is, is that it can lead the pilot into a full sense of security. It has a number of problems. One, the idea is it's correlated with your collective lever. So the idea is that when you raise the collective lever, it will want to close off the carb heat if you've got it applied. And when you lower the collective lever, it wants to increase or apply carburetor heat as you lower the lever. So the first problem is, is that I apply carburetor heat on the ground in my Beta 2 or my R4, and then I raise the lever to take off. And what happens is the carb heat assist takes off the carb heat that I've just applied. So what you have to do is you have to overcompensate. So pretty much pull full carb heat prior to takeoff and then raise the collective lever 
and you'll still hopefully have the needle outside the yellow when you're in the hover. Yep. So that's the, that's the first problem. The biggest issue I have with the carpet assist is that it only applies carpet as you lower the collective lever, and that is too late. You've got to have applied full carpet 20 odd seconds before you lower that lever to pretty much rule out the possibility of your engine stopping. And that's back to one of your early points where you've got the, the ice is starting to close the or restrict the air coming through. And then when you close yep. the, the throttle, you further restrict the air and you get to the point where there's just mm-hmm. you know, minimal air coming through and, and the engine stops. Yes, absolutely. And, and, the other problem, of course, is people say, well, you know, what's the first indication of an engine failure? And uh, most people would say, well, it, it, it goes quiet. Well, <laughs> it doesn't. Um, and I can give you a prime example of that. Uh, whereas, you know, you know it's never, it was never my idea to become a flight instructor. Yeah, I'm an engineer. Uh, I did a lot of test flying stuff. Like, I was quite happy doing that, but... I was bullied into being a flight instructor because they said it would improve my understanding. With, and I'm pretty glad that they did because that allowed Frank to um, be an actual investigator. But it was a situation where uh, we were doing engine offs to the ground. And at that point, I could talk a good engine off to the ground. I could fly a good engine off to the ground, but I couldn't do both. And it was a Friday afternoon, uh, well, just prior to lunch, actually. and I made a complete hash of this uh, exercise. And I said to Stan, the instructor, I said, look, this is not my, I don't want to be a fly instructor. It's not my idea. I've had enough. I'm going home. It's Friday. And he said, oh, no, Richard, don't do that. Um, You're good at the entry. So let's, after lunch, go and have a look at the entry. So I said, well, if you want, we'll go and do it. But I'd switched off by then. Anyways, off we went. Uh, 2003. I was playing the student and Stan was playing the instructor. And so he was, he was going through the entry into auto rotation. So, hey, we have hazel checks. Do you have the same thing over there? High areas, security engine, T's and T's, warning lights around, area yep. clear? Yep, same ones, yep. Okay, same thing. So he was doing the hazel check and uh, he pulled full carpet, uh, lowered the lever, blah, blah blah, blah, blah. I had stopped listening to Stan prior to lunch. And he was talking about loading the disc and going into a turn and all that sort of stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't listening to a word he was saying. I wasn't taking any notice. I was trying to think of what I was going to do that evening. It's Friday. And then I looked down in the cockpit and the uh, low engine oil warning light was on and the alternator caution light was on. And I thought, wow, that's strange. So Stan's still talking about reloading the disc in a turn. And I look up to the gauge, and the engine needle is at the bottom of the gauge. (laughs) And so I said to Stan, I said, hey, Stan, I think the engine stopped. He said, oh, has it? And I said, yes, look, these two lights are on, and the gauge is, the engine needle is at the bottom of the gauge. He said, well, so it has. Have you ever started one of these in the air before? And I said, no. He said, well, you'd better have a go then. So here we had a prime example of neither of us realizing the engine had stopped. And it had stopped because Stan did the standard check in those days. This was prior to my document. And that is, 
he pulled full carb heat but lowered the lever immediately. And of course, what had happened, we had cured some ice during the cruise and uh, the engine stopped when the butterfly valve eventually closed off the air to the engine. So it doesn't quite, there's actually no real audible difference in sound um, when you, and the engine stopped and you're in auto rotation. Uh, let's stay on symptoms then, because there's the, the notes in, in the fly manual talks about the, uh, the governor that can mask uh, cover over heat. So can we talk about if you're flying along and that ice is building up, uh, what can we kind of see and, and what are we looking for? Okay, well, um, yes. So the note in the, in the um, Pilot's Aubrey Handbook from Robinson is actually um, was one of my inputs. So Frank came out with this fantastic governor, without doubt. I mean, it's a brilliant piece of kit, but it still has its issues. And I was uh, having dinner one night with Barbara Robinson, some friends, and Frank, I was sitting next to Barbara. Frank was on the other side of the table. And Barbara said to me, said, uh, she said, okay, everyone calls me Dick. Uh, Dick, what do you think of Frank's new governor? I said, I, look, Barbara, it's brilliant. Unfortunately, in the UK or anywhere else in the world where they have suffered from carburetor icing, it masks it. He said, well, explain. So I explained. And um, so she said, have you told Frank? I said, well, I haven't yet. No. So she called across the table and said, hey, Frank, you know, Dick's got a issue with your governor. And Frank, of course, rolls his eyes and said, oh, Christ, now what's wrong with it? So if we go back pro before the governor and we had cured some ice during the cruise, what happens is that as the ice builds up in the carburetor, it does two things will reduce the RPM and it will reduce the manifold pressure. However, the reduction in RPM is greater than uh, the reduction in manifold pressure. And of course, if you are not attentive, then the simple thing happens is the horn and light comes on to tell you that the RPM has degraded. And so, if you like, horn and light was an early indicator, a very early indication of a possible build-up of carburetor ice. So, if I switch the governor on now, then the governor will try and maintain, well, will maintain the RPM of the engine. So, as the ice builds up, the governor will subtly open the throttle, masking the advent and build-up of carburetor ice. So, now you're in a situation where you could have quite a lot of ice built up on your butterfly valve. And if you then make a small reduction in power, there is a really good chance of that engine stopping due to the ice now building up on the downstream side of the butterfly valve. So I had to say this, frankly, we need to caution pilots that uh, the governor can mask carbon and icing. So therefore, if you're, and of course all R22s and R44s now have the governor, if you're flying along, you must understand that you must basically, in the conditions that are really conducive to carbonizing, you need more carb heat. Now, the Pius Oliver Handbook said, keep it out of the yellow. Well, on an R44, on a known accurate gauge, 
if you keep it out of the yellow, it most probably is sufficient. Most probably. But on R22, it isn't. You want at least 15 degrees indicated. Uh, all the time. Uh, and more. Sometimes, when I was instructing, um, I have it almost fully out. All I'm doing is obviously reducing the efficiency of the engine, and it, it slightly increases my fuel consumption. But um, I'd rather increase my fuel consumption than have a possible engine stop due to carbon rising. So it's an air on the side of caution. Richard, this is like, <laughs> I'm loving this. This is probably the, the most detail I've ever had about uh, the operation of carburetors and especially carburetor ice in, in years and years of flying. So this is awesome. I've got a few more things to keep firing at you if you're ready to take them. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of nights ago, we talked about the, I guess, the loss in power. Uh, and, and I've just found the safety notice again today going through it. And uh, safety notice 25 talks about you know, approximately 1.5. Uh, inches manifold pressure uh, difference. And uh, the other night you were talking about, uh, yeah, the difference in the limitation actually being brake horsepower. And I was kind of thinking, oh, we, I want to be careful we don't say, you know, disregard the aircraft limits um, because obviously there's a table in the, in the limitation section gives you your maximum continuous and your your five-minute reading there for different manifold Correct. pressures. But yeah, can you go through that conversation again? You know, talking about the loss of loss of density and and how that all works on that side. Yeah, well, I go to the fact I've been going to the factory every year for forty years, I think. In fact, this year is the only time I haven't managed to get to the factory because of COVID. So Frank and I go back to you know nineteen eighty, uh, a long way, and you know we became very very good friends, and um, uh, he agree with some things but not all the things I said and I likewise had the same thing. But this is another one of those inputs I had to Robinson. So the governor issued mask and carbon rising was one. This this was this was another one where I we had in the UK PPL students being failed on their exam. Yeah left because they were exceeding the manifold pressure, because they were, you know, some people actually do listen to me apparently, uh, because they were using carburetor heat. And to me, that was just, it's just ridiculous, people not understanding the system. So I went back to, I can't remember whether, yes, it was, yeah, I said to Frank, look, I'm sorry, Frank, we can't fly your Winston in the UK anymore safely. And he said, oh, God, Dick, now what's the problem? And I said, well, the problem is that in your pilot's operating handbook, you quite rightly say that we should apply carburetor heat and uh, we should keep it out of the yellow. So I apply carburetor heat to keep it out of the yellow. And as soon as I take off, my manifold pressure, because I'm using carburetor heat, is already at five-minute takeoff rating. As soon as I move forward, then I know I'm going to exceed the placarded limit. And I said, so we, we, can't, we can't fly. People are failing tests because they're using carburetor heat, as you said, uh, but because you have this placarded limitation, then you can't have both. And 
so we discussed it quite in a lot of depth. One of the problems Robinson has is is the FAA requirement as to how they uh, give the pilot the information on power being demanded from the engine. And so I said, well, look, you know, the, the limit is not the manifold pressure limit necessarily. The limit is a horsepower limit. And actually, the pilot operating handbook many years ago used to state the horsepower. So that's been taken out. So in the end, Robinson came up with the safety notice that actually pretty much uses my information from my document, although they err on a slightly more cautious side than I did. I mean, when I wrote those tables for the 22 and the 44, uh, I erred on the side of caution. Robinson erred on the side of caution. Okay, so we have a safety notice that basically says that the limit is not the manifold pressure indication, the limit is the brake horsepower, and that um, if you're applying carb heat, then the horsepower is not going to be reached until, I can't remember what the exact numbers are in their safety notice. Yeah, I've got it from you here um, at the moment. So it says approximately 1.5 inches of mercury additional yeah. uh, MAP is required to generate uh, maximum continuous power or takeoff power. Okay, which is absolutely correct. The trouble is, and I still have an issue, but poor old Robinson are, are between a rock and a hard place, really. They understand what I'm saying. They produce a safety notice, but I keep telling them a safety notice doesn't override a limitation. And your limitation section clearly states, and you clearly state, that you should not exceed the table uh, manifold pressure limits, and yet you're re writing a safety notice that says you can. <laughs> but if you take an examiner on a test, if the student or the, the, the potential pilot being examined says, well, you know, I exceeded the limitation because of the safety notice, you know, the, the examiner could quite rightly say, well, that's a safety notice, it's not a limitation. Do you see there's still, there's still this problem, and it's actually lack of common sense that causes the problem, is that people are not understanding that the limitations on the R22 and the R44 are as, uh, max continuous power MCP, and your five-minute takeoff rating is a horsepower limitation. And the reason it's a horsepower limitation, it's simple, uh, is that, of course, uh, during the development, design development of the helicopter, they had to do fatigue testing. And the fatigue, basically, testing is looking at something called an SN curve. In other words, it's course horizontally and loads vertically. So the more horsepower you apply, the more load you're applying to the component during the cycle. And so therefore, it's a bit like your um, uh, paper clip. Yeah, if I, if I take a paper clip and I bend it and bend it back again, eventually it's going to break, isn't it? Yep. So I'm applying load during a cycle. And the more load I apply, the quicker it will break. So 
Robinson's testing was done at 124 brake horsepower, continuous, and 131 brake horsepower on the R22 for five minutes. So if I exceed 131 brake horsepower, say, for more than five minutes, then my load has gone up on my components, which means that you are fatiguing your components beyond those limits that we know would give you if you 2,200 hours. And so therefore, you're a test pilot. That's all we can say to you is <laughs> that if you, if, if you exceed the limits, that break horsepower limits, then we can pretty much guarantee that the component is going to fail before we say it's going to fail, or Robinson says it's going to fail. You know, there's a whole area that we talk about on these safety courses, looking at the reasons why we have limitations, and certainly um, limitations based on power being developed, being transmitted through the drive, drive system and to your rotor blades. You know, I mean, it's, um, it, it, it can be scary stuff, and sometimes you need to, uh, not necessarily scare the pilot, but you need to make sure they're fully armed with the information so they can make the proper judgment when they, um, when they fly the aircraft. I always said to Frank that actually, because <laughs> it's not now because dear old Frank is, uh, has been retired for some You never used to want to mention Australia to Frank during a conversation because <laughs> he's so bonkers because, you know, you guys use the cattle mustering and stuff like that. And you create, well, the cattle muster is not you. But, uh, you know, he, you, you, I mean, you guys are using this um, to uh, to levels that Robinson never even assumed we'd go anywhere near. And you tend to break them, and then Robinson will beef them up and, and go from there. So you do all of Robinson and D. And I always said to Frank, I don't know why you don't use that as a sales pitch. Because if your R22 <laughs> can survive the conditions and the things that your um, master pilots put them through, I mean, they can survive anything that a flight school or a, or a private pilot is ever going to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's some, some pretty rough videos out there. Yeah, and it's, it's a fabulous tool, and it looks light, and it looks fragile, but actually it's a tough old bird. But, like every other helicopter you fly, it has areas that will bite you um, if you're not aware of them. And biting is, is really one of those. And, and I think you said yourself, uh, Mick, that you're from a military turbine background coming into the helicopter world with piston engines yeah. uh, and of course the military got I mean I was in the Royal Air Force and, and uh, we got rid of our Bell 47s uh, circa 1976 and brought the gazelle in so since 1976 no military pilots have a any sort of experience flying to engine helicopters so um, yeah for, for, for you guys it's a pretty steep learning curve. There's so many different uh, tracks I want to follow this down, but I think I'll, I'll keep it pretty focused for this one. I might uh, try and hitch up for another one. 
down the track. Okay. But, uh, so to keep on the, the icing side, uh, again, yeah. I was just looking at stuff today. There was a mention about using motor gas or, or MoGas. Probably doesn't relate so much to Robinson's, but maybe other piston uh, engine aircraft out there that are approved for, for MoGas. Have you, it, it was basically saying you're even more likely again to get carburetor icing on using um, automobile fuel because the lead rating cools the, uh, the air down even further. Is that anything you've had anything to do with? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a really complicated um, issue. Um, it, it was fairly simple in the old days, as most things were, and that is if you had a low compression engine, and the dear old R22 standard that came out in 1979 had an O320 uh, low compression engine. Uh, then you could use MoGas. And then when Frank went to the HP, simple thing was, uh, I think the modification was change the piston in the cylinder, and it went to a high compression engine. And you weren't allowed to use MoGas in any high compression engines. So in other words, no R22s, no R44s were allowed to use MoGas or motor fuel or whatever you like to call it. Um, however, Lycoming have brought out a service bulletin, which the number escapes me at the moment, recently in the last couple of years, that uh, gives you more information about the ability to use motor fuel, if you like, on their engines. So if we do talk again, I will hunt it out and um, uh, and give you that service bulletin so the pilots can uh, refer to that uh, and stick to that. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's not a Robinson issue really. Uh, they only produce the airframe. It's a, it's a Lycoming issue. Okay. All right. The, the other two ones. Well, you mentioned there was a company that had a, a fix uh, early on. So I don't know if that's something that's yeah. came to market or you talk about. And the other one. Um, we were talking about the five-minute limit and the impact it has on on part life. Uh, yeah. I guess it's one of those questions that doesn't get. There's no further explanation in any flight manual I've seen. Maybe just on your engineering background. In you know X number of flight hours, how much expectation is that the aircraft will be in that five-minute limit? Because you know you hear people saying, "Okay, well, I'll take it out for thirty seconds and pull it back in again." But what's, what's the background for? How much of an engine life is factored in being at that five-minute limit? Yeah, okay. You're now sort of pushing me into... I always ask during my safety course is that, you know, here I am sitting in the hover using 131 brake horsepower, and it's now five minutes, and I want to carry on. What do I do next? So, well, the first thing is I've got to take the power. You know, you've got to use something less than, than 131 brake horsepower. But when can I next use it? Is it a second? Is it a minute? Is it five minutes? Is it only once during a flight? Is it, you know, that sort of thing, which I think is the question you're asking. Yeah, exactly. And there is obviously no, there is no um, text anywhere in the Robinson information that tells you well, when hardly, you can use Hardly it. any helicopter. I don't, don't think I've seen any further information. So it's always like, yeah, tease out if there's any yeah. engineering, if we can go one step deeper. Yeah. Okay. Well, so um, I've, uh, this, this is, this, this, it comes down to fatigue 
the fatigue testing. So Robinson, any manufacturer, let's just keep any manufacturer, any manufacturer has to do a lot of fatigue testing, both bench fatigue testing and dynamic testing, you know, using, uh, they call it strain gauge testing in flight. So a strain gauge with a little electric circuit will basically tell you the amount of force being applied on the component during a cycle. Yeah, they're little, um, say, uh, resistance. If you so if I if I put it on a uh, let's say I uh, let's put it, I put it on a cycle cyclic stick, and I put one forward and one aft, and I bond it on there, and I route it to a piece of equipment with uh, looking at milli millivolts. When I push that stick forward, the forward facing strain gauge will go into compression and the aft one go into tension so it will change the resistance going through the strain gauge so they, they can use that information to determine exactly the amount of force being applied at the time so they put lots of these strain gauges on lots of places over the helicopter everybody does this and they will look at the forces being applied during a cycle, let's say a main rotor blade, and they can then see what the forces are being applied, or the load being applied at certain powers, and then they can bolt the main rotor blade, if we use that example, down to a bench, and they can apply that load and switch it on, and it will run for years. And eventually there'll be a bang, and it will, something will break, but they've got the number of cycles and the load applied, so they can come up. This is very, very simple explanation of fatigue testing, and they can come up with a, a life on that. So if we look at the takeoff limit, the manufacturer has to assume sometimes, or make a guess as to how many times the drive components or the aircraft is going to be subjected to takeoff power. And the manufacturer can say, well, look, okay, we will make an assumption that the takeoff power will be used four times per hour flown by that helicopter. So in other words, if you like, the takeoff power will be used and should be considered for, we say a five minute takeoff power, it should be considered for 20 minutes of every hour. So in other words, during fatigue testing, they will subject the components to the horsepower produced at that point for 20 minutes for every hour. Gotcha. Yep. So what I always end, there's always a caveat to that. And I say to people, look, don't go to Frank and say, hey, Dick said we could use 131 brake horsepower, if you like, for 20 minutes for every hour. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is how they get to the five minute rating and why there isn't any information as to when you can next use it. No, that's perfect. That's, that's all I was getting at. It's just, yeah, because I didn't yeah. know yeah. how it's calculated and to, to have, yeah, a little bit more information about how yeah. that sort of things works. Okay, tops. Yeah, yeah.
Um, most material, anyway, anything that's pr producing a load, uh, whether it be airspeed, loads on blade, or power, obviously, from the engine, then e everything is a fatigue um, issue. When Australia first got the Blackhawks, they had the EFSS, which is the uh, the stores wings on the side, and then they'd have the standard oh, yeah, load, yeah. Uh, jugs, so like the, yeah. the long range tanks. Yeah. And yeah. the same thing when they designed that, that they came up with the fact that you know, I don't know what the figure was, but it's like you know, ten percent of flights can be done and be used to, to ferry the aircraft from A to B and then take it off. And yeah. uh, of course. We just left them on, apparently. And when I say we, the Australian Army or the Air Force at that point, yeah. <laughs> and would do everything with it on and uh, start to get cracks. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, at yeah. one point. But you see, that's, that's a wonderful example of just, just uh, sometimes it's, just, it's not the pilot per se being stupid or ignorant or whatever. Sometimes I sort of blame the manufacturer for not giving the reasons why you have these limitations. Because I think if you give the average pilot, sensible pilot, the really good reasons of why you don't do something or you do something, then they're not going to do it. But if you just say, you know, <laughs> you, know you, you, you take them off um, and fly around normally and only fit them, then you're aiming at a problem later on. And everything, of course, is build it light and beef it up later. Richard, that has been awesome. <laughs> a blast. It's, it's an hour. It's gone really, really quickly. So yeah, I think uh, let's keep it reasonally focused. So if people are passing this on, you know, it can be about carburetor icing uh, as, a, as a topic. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to cover about the, the carburetor setup, um, whether it relates to Robinson or you know, other machines, before we, we wrap that up? Well, I, th I think that I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure whether I explain sufficiently the problem with well it's not a problem because robinson did it for very very, very good reasons robinson has derated the engines in their product and the reason for that is is you know many many reasons but one of the reasons of course is that if you're not running the engine at full power then of course it becomes very very reliable which you know the robinson engines have been incredibly reliable. Whereas in the old days, uh, if you take Bell or, or Schweitzer, as it was in, the, in those days, they'd take a 2,800 uh, so RPM maximum engine, combing engine, and run it at 3,200 to get more power out of it. But of course, the negative of there was that piston engines in those aircraft were notoriously unreliable and Frank wanted to get away from that. So he quite rightly derated the engine. And uh, the problem with derating the engine is a carburetor icing problem. Because as we explained earlier on, or I explained earlier on, that because you are at 131 horsepower during your climb out, your butterfly valve angle in your R22 is nowhere near full throttle. I think I said so. For example, uh, the beta is um, 54, 53, 54, and the beta 2 is, is 46. Um, so that's, that's your biggest caution operating the uh, Robinson product versus carburetor heat. 
use more of it rather than less of it. Don't worry about fuel consumption. Worry about the engine stopping because it will. <laughs> Fantastic. Richard, thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get you know, feedback on this one and, and some questions. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of pass yeah. you through and, and uh, if you can, yeah. I'd, uh, I'd love to get back on and, and talk about other, other things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel I could talk for days and days. It's difficult to shut me up. But uh, <laughs> There's a lot of information. You know, it's, my view is I'm retired, you know, getting close to retirement. There's so much information that people have given me, you know, the engineers and just engineers at Robinson and uh, and pilots and things, and I just want to pass it on before I become a gibbering wreck. So, you know, that's my goal in life is that people have been kind enough to give it to me. It's my duty to pass it on. That's a, a great way to do it. That was Richard Mornington Sanford from his jungle hideaway on the island of Borneo. It's a bit of a treat to hear those personal stories about Frank Robinson and some of the backgrounds to what ends up and, and more importantly, doesn't end up in the different aircraft flight manuals. If you found that useful, and I hope you, you really did, please do visit the show website and grab a copy of Richard's document there on carburetor icing. It has the different charts that we've been referring to, and it's unique in what I've come across in the past for its particular focus on helicopter engines. I found just in my own operation, I've, I've certainly been much more aware of, and, and not just aware, but much more deliberate in how I've used carburetor heat since talking to Richard. Even little habits like comparing the, the carburetor temperature gauge to the outside air temperature gauge during a daily inspection to check the, the match and its accuracy. Yeah, so if that has helped set off some light bulb moments or improved your understanding, let me know on the blog post what was the, the most interesting part of that for you. Just leave a comment on the website and look for episode 93 at rotarywingshow.com. Richard is open to coming back on to talk about the operation and the design of the Robinson Governor, some of his history, and some of the lesser known electrical interconnects on the Robinson helicopters. I'll work on that one over Christmas. We normally close these episodes out with a, a bunch of thank yous. This time around, I've got even more to be thankful for. You might have picked up at the end of the last episode that I talked about some employment uncertainty coming up for me. And unfortunately, they, they did eventuate. And after 11 years with the same flight school, my position was made redundant last week. I was pretty disappointed about the circumstances. But the upside is I have been blown away by the people who have reached out to me with messages or phone calls of support and with some new employment leads. I'm, yeah, just really touched and, again, just immensely grateful for the, the kindness and thoughtfulness of people in, in the industry. I'm actually pretty excited now and looking forward to taking on or having a chance to find some new challenges and being open to opportunities that I might not have previously looked at. So if you have any tips, let me know. One of the other side effects, I guess, is I've had to learn a lot more about the Air Pilot Award. So for listeners outside of Australia, essentially what we have here for all kinds of industries is a scheme of awards. And these awards are documents that set out the minimum employment conditions, such as salaries, leave, and other entitlements, and cover redundancies. Unfortunately, 
nowhere in the commercial license training is the Air Pilot Award covered. And really, pilots are left up to themselves first to stumble upon it and then to understand the details. As a quick example, if you are a pilot employed under a casual arrangement, then you should be paid a half day or a full day rate and not be paid at a, an hourly rate for the hours that you work. If you then fly more than four hours in a day, you then tick over to a, a higher hourly flying rate that basically will exceed the, the day rate uh, for that day. So it's little things like that there in the award wording. I flagged a, a future episode to focus on the details of the award that new pilots and some older ones in Australia should be up to speed on. If you have particular things that you think I should cover in that in terms of the, the award and the Air Pilot Award that have come from your own experience, then drop me a line at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. I can include those. That brings me to my favourite people in the world. The following honour roll are the folks that are supporting the podcast on Patreon or chipping in a few dollars, and some of them are a fair bit more than that for each episode. This helps to offset the download bandwidth that all of you are using up in my account and the, the hosting fees. And you can find details for that at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. So massive thanks to Heath, Gareth, Peter, Rendell, Chris, Brent, AJ, Tony, Jason, Michael, Hal, John, Kevin, Michael, Jeff, Mark, Shannon, Jake, Eric, Kirillin, Bill, Mike, Benjamin, Nikolai, and Ali Dar. From here, go jump on the website, grab the document that Richard has put together, and uh, check out some of his photos, and uh, share a link to the podcast episode. Tell someone that you know who flies piston helicopters that they should go and, and track this information down. Let's get that info out there. Most importantly, remember the old adage, it's better to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than in the air wishing you were on the ground. Stay safe. <laughs>